Here's a beautiful quotation from Wordsworth, which I think expresses something of the nature of living this practice. He said, with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. Those three aspects, making the eye quiet by the power of harmony, developing the deep power of joy, and seeing into the life of things, could be almost exact correlates to the three aspects of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha talked about, morality, concentration, and wisdom. With an eye made quiet by the power of harmony, in a way, is the essence of morality, according to the Buddhist teaching. It's a morality or a a compassionate dedication in life that is based not on self-judgment or sense of separation or self-righteousness, but rather on empathy. It's based on a deep sense of caring, of oneness. I once read about a research study where people were hooked up to all these different machines that measure everything. (laughs) And then they were both told stories and shown images that would tend to arouse great emotion in them. And then all of those signs were measured, blood pressure, temperature, pulse, and so on. What the study showed was that there was some number of people whose hearts would be pounding and whose blood pressure would be going up and who would be sweating in response to the provocation, and they would say they felt nothing. One of the aspects of this research was about empathy. Because if we can't feel our own pain, in different situations. We're not likely to understand the pain of someone else. The best kind of morality almost isn't morality. It's that natural sense of disinclination to cause harm because we know what it feels like. We know what it's like to hurt, to feel left out, to feel deprived. And so without a great deal of deliberation and thought, and certainly without any self-consciousness, we just don't want to do that very much. So it's, it's quite natural, and it's very beautiful, it's very loving. That's the, the whole basis of moral teachings from the Buddhist point of view. The Buddha said something I found quite beautiful when he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. There's something that we do when we get overcome by grasping or attachment or anger or fear that in a way is not loving ourselves. And so we create harm. When we harm someone else, inevitably we are harming ourselves. So if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. One can move through life with this kind of conviction. 
and this kind of commitment. The path actually begins traditionally with a teaching about generosity because it's one of the ways of beginning to experience this level of self-respect and self-love, this generation of joy in a unique and different way. Generosity, when practiced correctly or skillfully, has to do with letting go of our fears and letting go of our desires and opening to a sense of connection that might otherwise have been somewhat hidden from us. So it's affirming that connection, that belonging in this universe. As was mentioned, the practice of metta or loving-kindness is classically embedded in three other practices compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Sympathetic joy, which is actually delighting and taking happiness and the happiness of others, is a very interesting practice. Of those four, it's often considered the most difficult. Because to actually be happy when someone else is happy, rather than sort of smiling, but really to be thinking, ooh, you know, I would be happier if you had just a little bit less (laughs) than you've got going for you right now. It's not so easy. But it's possible. One of the reasons it's not so easy is because we tend to assume that happiness is some kind of limited commodity and that the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so we feel threatened. We feel uneasy very often when we see somebody with success or good fortune or something's going well for them right at that time. The practice of generosity actually affirms a possibility that someone else's happiness doesn't take away from our happiness, but is our happiness. Because genuinely, if we understood the nature of life, we would feel so very connected to other beings. Felt, I had this interesting experience this spring. I was living in New York because somebody had given me an apartment for a few months. And I had been sick quite a lot this winter. I had the flu, which turned to bronchitis and just kept going. But then I was better. I was living in New York. I was walking down the street one day, and there was a homeless person just on the street. The woman came up to him and she said, I've been really sick all winter. She said, I had pneumonia a few times and it was really a hard winter, but I'm a lot better now, so I want to give you some money because I want to share the joy. So I looked at them and I thought, I was sick all winter. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, (laughs) it didn't occur to me actually to share the joy in that particular way. But I was so awed. I thought, how beautiful. Just to think about doing that. And that it reflects, how much it reflects, that understanding that you know we should share the joy, shouldn't we? Because in fact, we share the suffering. So to open to the possibility of 
a greater sense of belonging through generosity is really the beginning of the path. And then that evolves into morality, which is another kind of generosity. It's called in the teachings the gift of fearlessness. Because if we live our lives in a certain way, we are eminently trustworthy in a sense. People can understand that they do not have something to fear from us. And that is a very great gift in this world. In daily life, what someone might call real life, but we prefer to call daily life, this is expressed through the classical five Buddhist precepts, which are undertaking the precept not to kill, not to steal, not to commit sexual misconduct, not to lie, and not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. All of these are not meant to be punitive, but rather they are tremendous vehicles for awakening. And if we undertake them seriously, then they are both provocative and very much protect us. They're provocative because they're not so easy, but they rather reflect the commitment to living an awakened life. Once uh, Joseph and I were teaching at a spiritual center somewhere, and the meditation hall had flypaper all over the ceiling when we walked in, which was very disconcerting. <laughs> so we asked them if they could take it down, and they said no at first. They said, we have this really terrible fly problem, which was true. They had a very terrible fly problem. But what was sad and ironic, especially because this was a spiritual center, was the fact that they didn't have screens on any windows. And they didn't have repellent anywhere. It's like, it's so easy to kill. It's not so easy not to kill. And at least to undertake the precept makes us stop and think. Is there an alternative? And it's hard. Sometimes we may not find an alternative. But at least we are awake, and we are caring, and we're trying. That's the difference. And these precepts are tremendously protective because none of us is perfectly mindful all of the time, as you may have noticed. One monk in the Buddhist time once went to the Buddha, and in the formal ordination of a Buddhist monk, there are, I don't know, 200 and something precepts that one undertakes. This monk went to the Buddha and said, you know, I can't even remember these precepts let alone follow them. And the Buddha said, can you remember one thing? So the monk said, I think so. <laughs> and the Buddha said, be mindful. Because if we are really mindful, we will feel that disinclination to cause harm. We will sense that it's like ripping a fabric 
or it's, it's out of harmony. But, truth be told, we're not always so mindful. And so undertaking the precept is a way of allowing us to be protected, to understand that actions have consequences, that we are all a part of a whole, and that what we care about matters, how we act matters, what we dedicate our lives to, it really makes a difference. It's interesting sometimes to take these precepts and to explore what they mean for us. That last precept, for example, not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness, is very interesting. Different schools and certainly different people will interpret that in different ways. One year we were in Burma with Sayadaw Upandita, and somebody said to him, Sayadaw, how do you interpret that last precept, the fifth precept? And you could just hear from that hopeful tone of voice <laughs> that this person was longing to hear, well, maybe one glass of wine a night or, you know, something. Um, there was a lot in that voice. And then Upandita, much to everyone's surprise, and I think this person's particular chagrin said, well, if somebody ties you up and pours the liquor down your throat and you don't enjoy it, <laughs> then you're not breaking the precept. <laughs> oh. So I thought, that's kind of extreme. <laughs> and then I thought, why not try that? Not try being tied up, but <laughs> try for, for some period of time actually taking the precept very intently in that way, not to take any kind of intoxicant, just to see. You know, again, it's not, it's not highly judgmental, um, but it's a powerful exploration of things that we might normally take for granted or do because they're easy or simply because they're convenient. And so I did. I thought, okay, for this next period of time, I'll do it that way. And it was very powerful. It's very important to remember in all of this that over and over again, the essence of the practice is being able to begin again. So that if you undertake some idea, some set of guidelines for a compassionate life, and you make a mistake, then it's not a call to then engage in obsessive guilt. The point is to really feel the pain of what we've done, to let go, and to begin again. Last fall, I was also living in New York City because somebody else gave me an apartment. She was um, sitting in Barry during the three-month retreat, 
and she let me stay in her apartment. So the first six weeks when I wasn't teaching in Barrie, I was pretty much in New York. And then during the next six weeks, I would go down periodically. The super of the apartment was a very funny guy. One day when I had come down from Barry and I was having a group of friends come in that night so we could meditate together, I arrived there, got into the elevator, and the super had put up a big sign in the elevator because apparently somebody was being very mischievous and pressing all of the elevator buttons so that when people would get in, it would stop at every floor. So the super put up this giant sign in the elevator which said, we know who you are and we know what you're doing. <laughs> so that was intense. And I went into the apartment and waited for my friends to come a few hours later. And one by one, they came in, and they, uh, there was one in particular who was rather prone to strong guilt. <laughs> and they came in sort of pale, you know. But then a few weeks later, we were getting toward um, the Christmas season, and so there were poinsettias that were put into the lobby. And apparently somebody, I don't know if it was the same person, uh, took one of the poinsettias. So the super put up a big sign in the elevator which said, just bring it back, all will be forgiven. <laughs> so that was better. All of us not being perfectly mindful will do things that are harmful and we will feel it because if we truly loved ourselves we would not harm another. Having harmed another, we feel that. And yet, what we really need to do is to understand the conditioned nature of action, of behavior, to be able to let go and with some energy just begin again. In the Buddhist psychology, the distinction is sometimes made between remorse on the one hand and guilt on the other. Remorse being that state of feeling how things were not really in harmony. Something we said sometimes long ago, we remember in practice, that we really wished we hadn't said, or we remember a time when we were silent when we really wished we had said something or we did something that wasn't quite right. And in a state of remorse, we do feel that, that harmony has been broken. But we are able to, in effect, forgive ourselves and move on. In a state of guilt, which is different than that, we get into almost an obsessive self-hatred where we go over and over and over the thing that we have done without being able to forgive ourselves so that we are left drained and exhausted and we don't have any energy to then make the determination to simply begin again, to behave in a different way. 
my all-time favorite story about this has to do with Joseph. When uh, he and I were sitting in Burma uh, in the 80s together, and the way the interview system works in Burma is such that you, we have individual interviews with, with the teacher six days a week, and you wait for your own interview in the back of the room. So you hear the entire unfolding of the practice of the person just ahead of you. And the person just ahead of me was Joseph. So I would wait in the back of the room, kind of track his whole, his whole thing. Um, <laughs> and one day, uh, Joseph came in, and uh, he said something to Saira Upandita about recollecting something he had done more than 20 years before that had really caused some harm to somebody. And I was sitting there in the back of the room, and we had been you know, quite close friends for 15 years or something at that point, and I was sitting there thinking, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> I wonder what he did, <laughs> because he sounded so distressed about it. And then um, Saira Upandita you know, uh, was speaking to him about basically the difference between remorse and guilt and how one needs to feel the pain of these things, but then let go and move on. And the whole time I was sitting there in the back of the room thinking, I wonder what he did. <laughs> But we weren't speaking because we were on intensive retreat. So another two months or so went by. <laughs> and then we left Burma together, and we went to Bangkok together. And I think it was that very first night we were having dinner. And I looked at Joseph, and I said, remember when <laughs> you were having that interview that day? And uh, you sounded so distressed because you'd done something really harmful. What'd you do? <laughs> And Joseph said that when he was, I guess, 16 or 17, uh, a girl had invited him to her sweet 16 party, and he didn't go. And as it turned out, not many people went, and she felt very saddened by that. And all those years later, out of nowhere, the memory, it just came back. So then when I was writing my second book, I wanted to use this story, so I called Joseph and I asked for his permission. And he said, what Dharma point are you trying to prove? <laughs> and, and I said, I'm trying to prove how we can feel that, that kind of unease, that, that pain over even just a little thing that we did. And Joseph said, it wasn't just a little thing. She was really hurt. So the last time I told that story here was last year, and it was my birthday. That night, the staff of the retreat gave me a birthday party, and Joseph walked in saying, I didn't really want to come. <laughs> I'm really very tired. <laughs> but I was afraid that in 30 years, <laughs> you know, I was going to be sitting, and then it would all come back didn't come to your birthday. We need to be able to let go and start again, no matter what has happened. 
And the extraordinary thing about the mind is that we can. There's a tremendous healing knowledge in that, that no matter what has happened, we do have that capacity to begin again that reflects the truth of change, of constant change, of renewal, of openness, of possibility. With an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy. The deep power of joy is like concentration. It's what happens within us when our lives become integrated when they become whole, when we can bring our otherwise scattered energy together. When I first began thinking about the Buddha, one of the things that inspired me right from the very beginning was my sense of the Buddha as an integrated being, as someone whose life rested upon certain threads of awareness and wisdom and compassion, whether he was alone or he was with others, whether he was meditating or he was teaching, whether he was in one place or wandering through India. His life seemed to be seamless, of one piece. He was himself, fully, in all of these diverse situations. Most of us tend to experience our lives as quite fragmented. So that maybe when we're alone, we're filled with loving kindness and compassion for all beings, but we're really afraid when we're with others. Or we're fine when we're with others, and it's very, very difficult for us to be with ourselves. Or we're one way at work and a different way with our families. What would it be like if we wove our lives together so that the same commitments, the same values, the same awareness was supporting us in all of these different facets, these different avenues of our life? It's the deep power of joy. To awaken that deep power of joy, to come to rest in it, we need to be able to let go of some of those external voices which continually pull us. We need the habit of looking within for some understanding. One year I was with some friends in Israel. I was about to teach a course, but before the course began, we were in Jerusalem, staying in Jerusalem, and one day we were wandering through the streets, the alleyways of the old city, through the marketplace, which is a place just teeming with life, with sights and sounds and colors and things for sale. And we're walking along and at one point, this merchant stepped out of his stall and he called out to me, I have what you need. And it was this amazing moment because it was like I stopped and it was like a thrill went through my entire body and I thought, oh wow, <laughs> he has what I need. 
And I actually started walking toward him when I had one of those enlightening moments where I thought, wait a minute. First of all, I don't need anything. And second of all, how would he know he has what I need? But really, especially in this society, we hear that voice calling out to us all of the time. I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And if only you got this, your life would be complete. We tend to believe those voices all too many times, and so we run. We spin. It's like we're dizzy from reaching out for this and this and this and that. It's very tiring. It's a great revolution in consciousness when we just stop and look within. Wait a minute. What do I need right now? Do I need anything in this moment in order to be happy? Just to stop takes a great deal of courage. And to look within takes a great deal of faith in ourselves. What do I really need right now in order to be happy? Once I went to my friend Stephen Batchelor's um, book reading, who's reading in Northampton, not too far from Barry. So I went to see him, and as he was reading, uh, from his latest book, there was some kind of demonstration going on outside. It was very loud chanting, intermittently loud chanting. So that as I was sitting there, I could hear people screaming, we want it now. <laughs> but I couldn't hear what they wanted. <laughs> you know, so they would go, what do we want? Something. <laughs> when do we want it? Now. In and I was sitting there really no longer listening to Stephen, but really trying to hear, what do they want? What do they want? Sometimes we don't even know what we want, but we know we want it now. <laughs> so just to stop and to draw our energy, to gather it back, to experience in a simple way the wholeness of our being is a very powerful thing to do. And if we do that, our lives can transform, because we will see into the life of things. We won't stay on a superficial level. We will be able to understand for ourselves what in the Buddhist tradition is called a self-witness truth. To know things as they are for ourselves. We will know deeply the truth of change, of impermanence. That everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. That everything in this world comes and it goes. As the Buddha tried to express this, he often used various images said, life is like an echo. It's like a rainbow. It's like a drop of dew in a blade of grass. It's like a dream. A flash of lightning in a summer sky. Everything exists. 
without any substance. This whole amazing world arises and we can't hold on to anything. If we see that very deeply, we can make peace with that truth and no longer struggle. We see the nature of change and it frees us. When I was with my friends in New York City, Monday night, we had a little Monday night sitting group, I was talking once about things that arise in the mind, although it could be the body too, that seem so oppressive, seem so solid, seem so massive, so uniform, monolithic. And I said that from the perspective of the practice, what we need to do is come close enough to those experiences so that we can begin to see the changing nature within them. But it's not, whatever it is, is not just one thing, one lump, one solid entity. Whatever it is, has within it change and movement and vibration, arising and passing away. It has life, in other words, because life is change. So we see into the life of things, and what we are with may still be difficult, it might still be painful, but it's not that solid, unyielding, massive thing pressing down on us. Because it couldn't be, in truth, a solid, unyielding thing, whatever it is. So then one of my friends in the group, who's a musicologist, said, oh, in music, we would take that example and we would say, well, take apart the chord. If we see the components of an experience, we will see the life of that experience because we will see change. And then we can be free in the face of it. We see change, we see interconnectedness because that's how things actually are. I was thinking today about sitting in this meditation hall and I realized that when I see something like this, what I see is meetings. I see design meetings and fundraising meetings and board meetings and program meetings and because that is my life. And so I get a sense that a lot of different things and a lot of people's energy and all kinds of conditions have come together so that we are sitting in this building right now. In any experience, that's the truth, that nothing stands alone, nothing stands apart. Everything is a web of relationship. At IMS, we had, not too long ago, we had a 20th anniversary celebration. And during the celebration, some young adults planted a tree. So now one could say you could go into the garden at IMS and see the tree, and all you see is the tree. 
But on another level, one looking at that tree would also see the earth and the sun and the winds. They would see or sense the force of all the people who have cared for that earth, the people who created that center, the people who nurtured that center, brought it along for 20 years. They'd see the life experiences of those young adults who planted the tree and the decisions that they made that had them come into meditation so young. and We would see a lot looking at that tree as this vast fabric of relationship, which it actually is. When we see into the life of things, that's what we see. We see how everything is changing and we see how everything is conditioned. That none of us is really alone. No experience stands apart, but is the, the consequence of all of those forces coming together and moving and changing. That's actually how things are. For any of these aspects of the path of morality, concentration, and wisdom to come together to be real in our lives, we need to practice. Any meditation teacher will say, it's almost like a code, you know, you have to take this oath that you will tell your students, sit every day. So I'll do that to fulfill my obligation. <laughs> but actually, it's very, very important. We also live in a society where we can so easily and readily confuse intellectual mastery with a real connection and a heartfelt expression of something. When I went to India in 1970, as I said, I'd been a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and I'd written term papers on karma when I studied Buddhism and Asian philosophy, and had taken midterms on rebirth and things like that. <laughs> so I thought I really understood something. There was one particular teaching which is it's very complex, um, called the Law of Dependent Origination. And in a, a massively simplified version of just one small aspect of it, the Buddha talked about how we experience the world in one of six ways, through one of the six sense doors, through seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or through the mind door, through thoughts and images and so on. So every moment of our lives is one of these six things. And the Buddha went on to say that every one of those moments, whether it's seeing or hearing or whatever, is known to us as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then he went on to say that our condition tendency when that experience, whatever it is, is perceived by us to be pleasant, our conditioned tendency is to try to hold on, 
to keep it, to preserve it, to stop it from changing. And when that experience is unpleasant, our conditioned tendency is to push it away in anger or to recoil from it in fear. And when that experience is neutral, our conditioned tendency is just to space out or to go to sleep and not actually to feel fully alive unless what is happening is strongly pleasant or unpleasant. So then the Buddha went on to say in the Law of Dependent Origination that we can experience the pleasure of something fully without adding that grasping. And we can experience the pain of something fully, but wholeheartedly, without that kind of striking out against it, trying to make it just not so. And we can wake up and experience neutral feeling completely. That's the possibility of mindfulness. So I'd studied this in college, and I thought, oh yeah, I get it. I really understand that. Then I went off to India, and about three months later, when I entered my first intensive meditation retreat, my teacher would often give a talk on dependent origination. And I would be sitting there thinking, oh, that's such an amazing teaching. That's so incredible. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know I could get enlightened really soon. You know, and he would go on with some fine nuance of the teaching, and I'd be sitting there thinking, I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life because I feel such incredible faith and devotion to these teachings. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know that given all of that previous karma and all those past life's connections with this teaching, I know I could get enlightened right away. And, you know, and he would go on, and I would go on, and I'd think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go to that yoga ashram I heard about in South India, and I'll do yoga for six months, and I'll really stretch out my body so that when I come back to meditate, I won't have any pain at all anywhere, and then it'll just happen right away. <laughs> and then many months later, sadly enough, it took many months, it suddenly struck me that what my teacher was talking about, and in fact what the Buddha was talking about, was my knee pain. Here was an unpleasant experience, a touch sensation in the moment that I was habitually relating to with aversion and dislike. And here was the very possibility he was pointing out in the whole teaching of dependent origination. Here it is. Here's a moment. Here's an opportunity. So it's not abstract. And it's not different from our actual experience, whatever it might be. But for that to be real, generally speaking, for most of us, we need to devote some time every day to making it real, to living out those values, not just thinking about them or reading about them. So sit every day. If you can sit for some period of time, 45 minutes or an hour, that's great. But I actually believe the everydayness of it is the critical thing. 
because it does bring the teaching to life and it makes it our own. If you've only got five minutes one day, don't think, well, I've only got five minutes. It's better to do it for five minutes than not to do it. And something happens. There's something just in that act of sitting down or walking, whatever it is, whatever form you choose for that dedicated period of formal practice. There's something about that that is tremendously affirming. That spiritual life is for us too, that it can be real, that it means our actual experience, whatever it is. It really needs to be done. Very often people find it, not only is it hard to sit every day just because it's hard to find the time, but it's also hard because we tend to get discouraged because it doesn't feel like what we think it should feel like. One of the great moments in my early meditative career happened when I was living in India and not always on retreat. In those days when I was not on retreat and I was sitting and everything felt good, it felt the way I thought it should feel, I would think, oh wonderful, I'm going to live in India the entire rest of my life. And then when things did not feel very good, when I was restless or bored or I had knee pain or back pain or something like that, I would think, I can't do it, it doesn't work, it always works for everyone else, clearly, but it doesn't work for me, and on and on, and I would just stop. I would feel defeated and I would get up. So I went to one of my early teachers, Menindra, and I expressed this dilemma and he looked at me and he said, just put your body there. He said, that's what you need to do, is just put your body there. Some days it will feel one way and other days it will feel another way. It doesn't matter. And we can't know anyway without the great wisdom of hindsight Really, just put your body there and let the path unfold, however it does, taking the time that it needs, whatever it is. We do that understanding the, the growth and the evolution of our own intention. Whatever one's intention is in practice, it will change over time as we understand more and more. And over time, that intention really affirms the very basic understandings of morality, which is that we are connected and we do not practice just for ourselves, that we do practice ultimately for all beings. It's believed in the tradition that when we do something for the good, when we are generous or we're kind or it would have been very easy to tell a lie and maybe we don't, or we sit, that there's actually a force that is generated. There's an energy that's made from the intention of the mind turning toward the good, affirming 
our own possibility for freedom. Generally, conventionally speaking, this force is translated as merit, which has, it's not very satisfying, um, both because it implies, you know, like a little warehouse somewhere where uh, you're storing, storing it up, and then because of all kinds of other associations. But that is the general term. But it's very much believed that this is an energy that supports us, that sustains us, and that can be offered, can be shared, the traditional term, with all beings everywhere. And so classically, one will come to the end of a sitting or the end of a retreat and very consciously feel the joy of that merit. The merit doesn't come by having the best sitting in the world. The merit comes by the fact that you sat down. And even if you can't concentrate, it comes from the fact that you are willing to begin again, over and over again. That's, the, that's what produces the force, that's what makes, that's what generates the energy. So you don't have to feel that you know, it was a really crummy day or uh, I couldn't concentrate all retreat and therefore you know, there's nothing to share. We are sharing our commitment, we're opening to some possibility of a greater connection. As we keep practicing, this understanding becomes integrated into our practice so that there's less clutching and coveting and trying to capture the great experience that we can then have almost like a kind of trophy, you know, that we can show off to people. But really, very strongly, we come into a fullness of perception of bodhicitta, as Joseph was talking about, of really deeply caring about our connection, which is inevitable to all beings everywhere. I have a friend who is a really good therapist, I'm told, and she was practicing. And one day, a man went to see her who she really didn't like and asked her to be his therapist. And she didn't like his political views and his views about women and all kinds of different things. And so she tried to get him to see another therapist, which he didn't want to do. So finally, she took him on. And she said the most interesting transition happened because as their relationship developed, because she was his therapist, she necessarily began to view herself as his ally, which didn't mean condoning his behavior. It meant seeing the suffering in it and trying to help him work through it and change because of seeing that suffering, the suffering he was causing himself, the suffering he was causing others. So she said that over time, it wasn't like she got to approve of his set of behaviors, 
but she actually came to love him because it's like they were on the same team. She told me that story, I thought of the Bodhisattva, who traditionally is one who sees their liberation as something that's inextricably bound to the liberation of all beings everywhere. I began thinking about the Bodhisattva as a really incredible job description. You know, I'm like, what would it be to move on this earth as though everybody was ours? So that we were all on the same team. So that we had that sense of wanting to see the release of suffering rather than such a strong sense of self and other and rejection and separation. That's the bodhisattva. And again, as with all things in the teaching, it's not very grandiose. I once asked one of our um, Tibetan teachers, Sukhni Rinpoche, what's the meaning of a bodhisattva? And he said, a bodhisattva is someone who goes to a party even when they don't feel like it. (laughs) (laughs) It can be very, very simple. (laughs) It's just plain living but with a wholeness, with an integrity behind it. Because we understand where our greatest happiness is to be found. I'll close with this other poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which is called Famous. She says, The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets. Sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.